0: I spent the first, I don't remember, three, four lectures defining, two or three I know, surely, uh just defining, giving you really just a clear defining of that first, first distinctive that is our soul, the soul supremacy of the scriptures. That was a doctrinal point which... We took up, I defined it for you. We talked about it at some length in two or three different lectures, and then I asked Luke to cover for me uh something of a if we may say some of what our adversaries would say concerning our use of uh, the scriptures alone and give us some. Apologetic defense for our position. He emphasized that we were, we're charged often with circular reasoning and reasoning, circular reasoning. And we, uh, accept will, willingly that claim. And he touched and addressed to us this matter and, uh, and gave us a a biblical view of our apologetic for for taking the position we do solidarity of the scriptures, uh, and then I had asked Brother John several weeks ago to prepare himself uh, to share with us some testimonies. That's why I put that as a title for the, lesson, the lecture day testimonials some testimony testimonies from history uh, of those who have paid great price for holding this truth. Uh, There was a time many decades of our national history where the scriptures we do not ever claim that this was a Christian nation. We do not claim that. We do not claim that it was ever founded on the scriptures as was, uh, for example, the reformer, the, the uh, covenanters in Scottish Presbyterianism. It never was, it never intended to be. However, from the outset, the scriptures were given a great place of prominence in the forming of our nation and certainly in the culture of the lives at large of our national history. That is now completely gone. The scriptures hold no place uh, in public life in America anymore. Because of that, we may forget that there have been those in the past who have paid greatly for their holding to this Baptist distinct of the soul's efficiency of the Scriptures. And so I'd ask John to prepare himself to bring to us some, and I'm sure volumes are filled with them, but just some of the examples of those have paid such a price for this very doctrine. So, Brother John, if you'll come and share with us.
1: As you've already heard, it has fallen to my lot <clears throat> to deliver an historical sketch if you will it is at once a delightful task but if I may use another adjective it is also I trust you will understand when I use it and unenviable task to record the life and labors and sufferings of another. But representative testimony is called for to those who stood faithfully, unmoved by fear or favor upon that great principle that is the current subject Of our study of Baptist distinctives. A thousand examples might be named. And ten thousand more. Have gone to their graves. Unnamed. All whose blood was shed. And whose life was forfeit. For this principle. I have chosen today one who shall stand for all, but a worthy representative I believe him to be, and I trust by the time we close you will also share the same opinion. Our subject today needs no man to commend him. His Lord has no doubt pronounced that eternal well done upon his labors. But I offer as we begin the eulogy of no less than Daniel Defoe, who wrote of this man, he is dead. He lies a monument of English tyranny on the one hand and selfish principles on the other both which make nations blind to men of merit. Defoe shall have more to say later in our sketch, but we begin with our own words. I think that I may say with little fear of contradiction that the 17th century, that is the 1600s, was among England's most tumultuous. It opened with the death of the last Tudor monarch, Elizabeth, in 1603. It saw the British crown transferred to the Scottish Stuarts. It saw the translation of the greatest English version of the scriptures, the King James Bible it hurried on to a civil war and the trial and beheading of their deposed king, Charles I. In rapid succession came Cromwell's protectorate, the restoration of a profligate monarch in the person of Charles II, and that fateful day on August 24th, sixteen. 16- 62, when more than 2,000 of the brightest lights the church has ever known were cast out of their pulpits by the act of uniformity. 25 years later, and James II had exhausted whatever remained of English goodwill, and the glorious revolution permanently removed the House of Stuart from the throne and installed the Dutch House of Orange in the persons of William and Mary. The century drew to a close with the passing of the Act of Toleration, which few of those who were ejected in 1662 lived to see, but which finally brought in an era of greater greater religious leniency in England. Our immediate context is that period commonly called the Restoration, specifically that of the return of the reign of Charles II that began in 1660. Deceit. Accomplished his return. You may ask me later regarding the details of that. But deceit accomplished his return to the throne of England. And presaged a dark period for Britain. It's outworking spread misery throughout the land. It was known in Scotland this period. As The Killing Time. When the Presbyterian Covenanters were hunted like animals and not a few had their heads raised on pikes at the city gates of Edinburgh. James Guthrie's head bleached there for 27 years. His son William... A lad of five, when his father was executed, was compelled as by some unseen force to return again and again to that gate. And he was just as often tormented by the sight. William himself was laid in a grave before his father's head was finally laid to rest with his body. Should you wish to delve further into the Scottish experience in that period, I refer you to Jock Purvis's excellent series of articles on the Covenanters entitled Fair Sunshine. But it is not of the Scottish Covenanters that I have come to treat today. Those noble men were only a part of the thousands that died under the cruelties and outrages of Charles and his executioner in England, Lord Chief Justice Sir George Jeffreys. Noble as these Scots were, even they, even they, were unable to rise above the mingling of church and state, which led inevitably to persecution of those whose conscience would not approve the Presbyterian variety of of intolerance. No, no, rather liberty. True liberty of conscience was and is the legacy of the Baptists alone. A liberty bought at the price of rivers of blood and mountains of death. And so it is to one of our own spiritual ancestors that we turn aside for a few moments to behold and wonder. Turn back, turn back with me then the pages of history to the year sixteen. 83. 23 years the second Charles had reigned, and 23 years dissenters, or nonconformists, as they were officially styled, foremost among them Baptists, had suffered under the ongoing enactments of a hyper Anglican and royalist parliament and a debauched monarch men whose names and lives should be fami- as familiar to us as our own men such as William Kiffin Hansard Knowles Benjamin Keech and of course John Bunyan and if These names and lives are not so familiar. We should blush for our failure to honor our ancestors. These men were among the vanguard of the Baptists in this era. But it is not even to these I would have us look. There is another unjustly neglected and largely forgotten but whose labors and sufferings merit for him a better memorial. He was well known to Kiffin, Knowles, and Keach, and to all the London Baptist community. As Defoe described him few greater scholars clearer heads, or greater masters of argument, ever graced the English nation. Should you require a specimen of proof of Defoe's assertion, you need look no further than this book. It is entitled, A Key to Open Scripture Metaphors. And though it has been for two centuries mostly attributed solely to the worthy Benjamin Keech, as it is in this very edition, you will find that in its original 1682 publication, he who is the subject of our study today was then named as its co-author and in fact was responsible for the entirety of what is formed in this book as Book 1, which in this edition runs to 198 pages. Yes, our subject was a scholar indeed, and a master of argument, as we shall yet see. Enter then with me into the house of a London schoolmaster, busy at his writing desk. His name, Thomas DeLong. He has been preparing since early summer a reply. A reply to what, you ask? to a performance by one of England's most eminent men of her state church, the Reverend Dr. Benjamin Calamy. Some of you will recognize the family name. His father, Edmund Calamy, was a prominent member of the Westminster Assembly and was ultimately put out of his pulpit as a nonconformist in that fateful year already noticed, 1662. Sadly, this son, Benjamin, scrupled his father's nonconformity, and in addition to being an unswervingly loyal Anglican, was a chaplain and ordinary to Charles II. The summer of 1683 had seen the good doctor, ascend the pulpit, the very pulpit from which his father had been ejected 20 years before for non-conformity, I remind you, to deliver his full-throated defense of the Anglican Church and of unabridged conformity to her communion. And they say there are no ironies. In its printed form, that is Calamy's sermon, in its printed form, Calamy dedicated his sermon to Bloody Jeffries with these words quote, The enemies of our church and government will not dare loudly to condemn what you are pleased to protect. Unquote. That dedication accomplished its intended end for it silenced many a mouth and pen out of fear of Jeffrey's well earned reputation for using prosecutions to effect persecutions but Delon DeLong was of another mind he had read in Calumny's sermon a specific call, from the Churchman himself, to appraise the matters in dispute between them, or in Calamy's own words, quote, to equally hear both sides and diligently to examine the merits of the cause unquote. this Thomas de Long did as he later wrote. Calumny, others being silent, I obeyed you in that particular in compliance to what you desired for that obedience Thomas Delong would pay dearly late on the night of November twenty ninth sixteen eighty three DeLon was taken prisoner at his house and soon remanded to jail after brief questioning by no less a dignitary than the recorder of London himself. What a criminal. On the day following, he was committed to the infamous Newgate Prison, which DeLon chronicled dismally as being, quote, lodged among felons whose horrid company made a perfect representation of that horrible place which you describe when you mention hell, unquote. His crime? A book. This book you see before you, or rather it's original. An answer to Dr. Calamy's challenge. An examination of the claims made by him in behalf of the Church of England to those whom he had described as scrupulous consciences. A book humbly titled a plea for the non-conformists. Ah, but do not judge this book by its homely cover or even its modest title. It was and remains a masterwork of biblical exposition, historical analysis, and of turning an opponent's best argument Against him. But how came Thomas Dillon to be the Baptist champion? Similar to many others through time, he was, as the saying goes, an unlikely hero. Despite the echoes of French origin in his surname, Dillon was actually the son of poor Irish Roman Catholic. Parents. He was born at Brinney in County Cork. The year of his birth is uncertain, but it was that three Edwards in succession were to become the great influences upon his life, humanly speaking. At a young age, he came to the notice of Major. Edward Riggs, a soldier in Cromwell's army, the owner of the farm on which DeLon's parents were tenants, and most importantly, a Baptist, and an early patron of what would become the Cork Baptist Church, which exists today. Another Edward, Edward Bamfield, also a Baptist, was DeLon's first employer at the age of 16. He was also, according to Joseph Ivany's history of the English Baptists, quote, the happy instrument of DeLon's conversion, unquote. DeLon soon embraced Baptist principles, and for that, he was met with increasing opposition where he lived, you will understand, of course that Southern Ireland was still a stronghold of Roman Catholicism at that time. He left Ireland in the early 1660s, emigrating to London, but not before his marriage to Hannah Hutchinson, the daughter of yet another Edward, Edward Hutchinson, also a Baptist, with whom Delon had two children, a daughter And a son. He opened a successful grammar school in London and became a respected member of the growing community of London Baptists. But the times, the times were not auspicious for such an association. Parliament's acts of the 1660s, signed by the King, a king whose equivocations on religious toleration helped him to secure the throne. The acts of Parliament effectively made dissent from the English church a capital offense. As in Scotland, so in England, and nowhere more so than in London, it was dangerous then to openly avow one's nonconformist principles. Much more to publish those principles in reputation of one of the church's fairest sons. Scores, scores had been arrested simply for preaching, including DeLon's friend and first employer, Mr. Bamfield. Who had also come to London. Bamfield's arrest eventually led to his death in prison, where he had been held for nearly a year for preaching. But the question, the question remains: How did it fall to Delon's lot to engage the king's chaplain? And on what grounds did he, in his own words, take up the gauntlet against a man of Calumny's figure? He had no fame, no name, and no ecclesiastical reputation to defend. He was no William Kiffin, known for both wealth and piety, nor Hansard Knowles, who for decades was the tacit leader of the Baptists throughout England. Nor was he even a Keech, who was so greatly noted for his courageous public defenses of the Baptists. No, he was none of these. But Delon possessed a providential weapon that few recognized and fewer appreciated. He had a wide and extensive education. You see, it was this major rigs that early took cognizance of DeLong back in County Cork, And it prompted him to fund DeLong's education out of all places a local monastery until he was 16 years of age. There he was taught, and taught well. He became a master of Latin. And from it he emerged a scribe, well instructed, and its lessons were providential preparations for the hour when, alone, he answered the challenge of the king's champion. The sum and substance of Calamy's argument, when all points and subpoints are distilled together, was this. The matters and practices that nonconformists scruple and reject are nowhere forbidden in the scriptures, and therefore you may safely trust the teachers of the church and see it to be your duty to submit to them in all these things. And how did DeLon answer this assertion? By the very principle that is the subject of our current study. But we shall have Mr. DeLon answer in his own words. Quote, On this single point stands the whole controversy of separation. That nothing lawful in the worship of God, but what he has expressly commanded, not all things are lawful which are not forbidden, as say the advocates for the Church of England. For what need had the dissenters make negative articles of faith where the affirmative necessarily implied them? They do not make negative points of faith, but they therefore refuse the belief of them because not contained in our only rule of faith. On this account, they do reject the Pope's supremacy, transubstantiation, infallibility of the church of Rome in delivering points of faith, namely purgatory and other fopperies. That's a good word. Fopperies. Other fopperies such as salt, oil, spittle, exorcisms, conjurations, baptizing of bells, etc. And on the same account, do they reject what the Protestants have received either from pagan or papist? as to national, provincial, diocesan, and parochial churches, as also the government of the Church of Christ by lords, archbishops, bishops, deans, archdeacons, parsons, vicars, curates, chancellors, officials, etc. Because not contained in our only rule of faith. In like manner do the dissenters also reject the consecration of churches, chapels, cathedrals, priest's garments, altars, liturgies, singing services, litanies, bowings, crossings, cringing, holy days, fast feast vigils, because not one word of any of them is contained in our only rule of faith. For that, the short resolution of the dissenters' faith in this great point is this, that they ought to believe nothing as an article of faith but what God hath revealed and that the complete revelation of God's will to us is contained in the Bible. Time sadly prevents us a full exposition of Delon's work, but it is, in short, a masterpiece of refuting his opponent with the arguments of his own advocates. For more than 100 pages, Delon quotes from a multitude of scripture and from sources both ancient and in his time modern, to demonstrate that the practices of the Church of England are but borrowed from the Roman Church and moreover that the arguments made by many an anglican doctor justifying their separation from Rome are more than sufficient to justify the nonconformist separation from the established church one example only i quote for you these prudent and indifferent circumstantials about religious worship, as they are pleased to call them, however minced and extenuated, may be of the same nature with Jeroboam's idolatry. With this aggravation, with this aggravation, says Delon, that Jeroboam varied but in four things. And these, in above forty particulars, wherein they have presumed to swerve from the pattern and add to God's word and worship, unquote. he then concludes his treatise as he began, with an appeal to the word of God alone. He says: there needs no negative proofs to disprove all the rights, services, and ceremonies in question because none of them are contained in our only rule of faith. There it is. I commend to you this book as an epitome of argumentation. Founded upon the principle we are now studying the scripture. Our only rule of faith. But I must hasten on to the outcome of Dillon's labors. His book had not yet made it completely through the press when he was arrested in November 1683. He was charged with high crimes. The indictment, if I may, ran thus. The jurors of our Lord the King upon their oath present that Thomas Delon, late of London, gentlemen not regarding his due allegiance, but contriving and intending to disquiet and disturb the peace and common tranquility of this kingdom of England, etc., to bring the said Lord, the king, into the greatest hate and contempt of his subjects, machinating and farther intending to move, stir up, and procure sedition and rebellion, and to disparage and scandalize, oh, deliver us, to disparage and scandalize the book of common prayer. On this 30th day of November, aforesaid Thomas DeLon, by force and arms, by force and arms etc unlawfully seditiously and maliciously did write print and publish and cause to be written, printed and published a certain false Seditious and scandalous libel of and concerning the said Lord the King and the Book of Common Prayer, aforesaid, entitled A Plea for the Nonconformists. There you have the indictment for a book. Force and arms. Sedition. Rebellion! Oh, what a criminal! What a usurper of the throne and of the church, a man to be feared indeed that could foment a revolt, a rebellion, yea, regicide itself by answering a churchman's arguments with Scripture, reason, and the church's own words. Such, however, were the times And with Jeffreys as the presiding judge, a verdict of guilty was assured. He was convicted, fined 100 marks, the equivalent to nearly 67 British pounds in 1683. And he was to be held prisoner until the fine was fully paid. Oh. And also, all the sheets printed to that point were to be publicly burned with fire. That's in the indictment. With fire. At the Royal Exchange in London, they truly feared this man, did they not? But but in the court's great mercy, because he was a scholar, he would not be pilloried. Though, as the court noted, he deserved it. Thomas DeLon never left Newgate Prison. He wrote three times to Dr. Calamy, requesting that as it was upon his invitation, that is Calamy's invitation that he had written at all, he would for the sake of his honor and as a professed minister of Christ, that he would use his influence to assist him in this case. Calumny's answer to the first letter was that he would do him what kindness he could. Calumny's second answer, a month later, now dismissed DeLong's request as none of his concern. Calumny's answer to DeLong's last letter that was dated January 14th, 1684 was a deafening silence. Delon was convicted and sentenced on January 18, 1864. The expense of his trial and his defense had left him penniless, deprived of his income, he had no money to pay the fine, and his family was now destitute, unable to pay their expenses, and with no one offering help. His wife and children were forced to join the imprisoned Delon in his cell. At Newgate Prison. He continued to write. While in Newgate publishing. An account of his trial. And a treatise against religious persecution. He had little enough subsistence. The kindness of his friends. The few that visited him. Visited him. But his sufferings increased beyond measure when he watched the door close and heard the lock turn imprisoning his wife and children with him. It was a slow, painful, and silent vision. His son, the youngest, was the first to die. Then. His daughter. Finally, his wife. Dillon was left alone and it seems nearly forgotten. Fifteen months he lay wasting and then he too died a prisoner. for for the crime of declaring the Bible to be the only rule of faith and that all the inventions of man and God's worship to be idolatry. Surely it cannot be an overstatement that Thomas Delon with his family perished A sacrifice to the tender mercies of the wicked. But also as an offering to the principle we are now studying. And that more than three centuries later. This principle was no abstract theology for him. May it never be for us. Delon's plea for the nonconformists languished in relative obscurity until seventeen oh four, nearly twenty more than twenty years after his death. From its original in sixteen eighty three until eighteen forty five. But beginning in 1704, it went through at least, at least, the known number, at least 23 editions in both England and America. This edition is dated 1800 and was published in New York State. Mr. Defoe, mentioned earlier, wrote a preface to a 1706 British edition and that preface became standard in nearly every subsequent edition. His words, I trust you will find, to be a fitting epitaph upon this scholar, this martyr, this Baptist. DeLon wrote, I cannot refrain from saying such a champion of such a cause deserved better usage. And it was very, very hard such a man, such a Christian, such a scholar, and on such an occasion should starve In a dungeon. And the whole. Body of dissenters in England. Whose cause he died. For defending. Should not raise him. Sixty six pounds. Thirteen shillings and fourpence To save his life. Could go on here. To exclaim against the cruelty. Of one party. And the ingratitude of another. I shall make no apology here for my writing this preface. But what I hope the reader will allow reasonable. The book is perfect of itself. Never author left behind him a more finished piece. And I believe the dispute is entirely ended. If any man asks what we can say, why the dissenters differ from the Church of England and what they can plead for it, I can recommend no better reply than this. Amen. Let them answer, in short, Thomas DeLong and desire the Querist to read the book. Tis pity. Closed. So 'tis pity after his death, he has no better a hand to recommend him to the world. But since no man will build a monument upon his grave, I thought a debt due to his ill-rewarded merit to write this as a monument upon his work. And I am sorry it is performed No better. Thomas DeLon is largely unknown in our day. That that is a tragedy, both for his martyrdom and for his writings. Perhaps a new generation will yet arise that will, in the words of Defoe, build a monument upon both his grave and his work. Thomas DeLong, when you think of this foundational principle of our faith, Scripture, our only rule, when you think of this foundational principle of our faith, inscribe Thomas DeLon's name beside it in your soul. Let's pray together, please.